Hello and welcome to The Motherhood Guide, where it's all about making your experiences of pregnancy, birth and motherhood better. I'm your host Kelly, a mum of two, a hypnobirthing teacher and birth educator, and I'm here to help you thrive in motherhood rather than simply just survive. Let's get started. Emma, welcome to The Motherhood Guide podcast. I am so excited to hear your wisdom today because I actually have to confess, I think that I might have a problem eater. I think that my little boy Jonah is a problem eater so I feel like I'm going to learn a lot from you today and I'm really excited to get some tips and no doubt this will be really helpful for lots and lots of parents because I think that eating is quite a common issue isn't it and Emma could you give us a little introduction so that everybody knows who you are and what you do so yeah, my name's Emma. I am a paediatric dietitian and I work with parents who are struggling with fussy eaters and food allergies. But I'm not just a dietitian, I'm also a mum who has lived through multiple food allergies. My little girl had a milk and egg allergy and also was a very fussy eater as well. So I try to share lots of practical strategies that worked for me, but also from a professional point of view as well. So hopefully nothing that's extreme or out there that you can't try at home. Yeah, that's amazing. So what kind of got you on this path to become a dietitian? Was, was it, were you a dietitian before having your child? Yes, I was. Yeah, I was a dietitian yeah. before. But I actually used to work as an events manager before in oh. marketing events. So I retrained at 30 and went back to university for four years to retrain to be a dietitian. So yeah, I had a bit of a midlife kind of crisis around then and decided, well, I worked in events for like 10 years and I just felt like I couldn't do that with children. It was lots of international travel and that sort of thing. And it just wasn't practical, long hours. And I just got more and more interested in nutrition. And I just thought the only way I'm going to be able to do this full time is if I retrain to be a dietitian. So, yes, I retrained at 30 and I have my little girl at 35. I want to say I'm trying to remember. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I re- yeah, I was a dietitian before I had my little girl. Oh, that's interesting. Did that feel a little bit reassuring for you to have that background going into parenthood to kind of did you feel like you had any nerves or worries or concerns? about having to do like the weaning stage or dealing with allergies or anything like that or were you quite confident from the outset? To be honest probably no because I think anyone that has a child the first time round has this kind of idealistic view of what it's going to be like and it wasn't like what I thought it was going to be like to be perfectly honest. Um, I remember like a health visitor saying to me like when she was really I mean she was born prematurely as well so she was born at 36 weeks so the whole feeding journey was a complete and utter nightmare so I tried to breastfeed her it it really didn't work and I also had my father-in-law who was in intensive care and he died sort of two weeks after she was born so it was all really stressful we were spending our time back and forth in intensive care which she wasn't allowed in because you're not allowed to take a premature baby into intensive care because of the risks So it was all really stressful and not at all how I envisaged being able to just breastfeed that I thought would be really easy and I'd just be able to do it. But actually, she had to be fed from basically the moment she was born because her blood sugar levels were so low that there was a risk that she'd drop into a coma. So they had like kind of a feeding regime if you feed her on formula every two hours where you couldn't, you know, normally you can often wait for your milk to come down and all of that sort of stuff. We couldn't do any of that with her. So the whole thing was much more stressful 
And I, I do, yeah, I just envisage like, you know, oh, it'll be fine. You'll just breastfeed your child and everything will be fine. But no, nothing, nothing like that. And we were then on, then she dropped away. And then we were on this like two hour kind of feeding regime where it would take like an hour to feed her about, I can't remember how much, like 30 or 80 mils of milk. And then it would be like, and then an hour of basically just kind of holding her up and because she just had really bad reflux as well. Mm-hmm. So that was a, yeah, an absolute nightmare. And then I remember getting, trying to get some help with breastfeeding and then nurse going to well, what you need to do is you just need to like pump in between. So feed her, then pump and then, you know, then just, you know, and then, do, and I was like, but I'm on a two hour feeding regime. Like it's taking me an hour to feed her. Like, when do I sleep? Like, when, and I was just like, no, forget it. Like, this isn't going to work. I can't do this. So then I just, yeah, decided that we were going down the formula route and I just kind of had to accept that. So no, none of that was was straightforward. And then about three months, we realized that she had a milk allergy because she basically screamed nonstop all day, wouldn't drink anything, refused to have any milk. It was just basically horrific. And I just thought, oh my God, what have I done? And yeah, I took her to a doctor and then they basically took, sent her straight to hospital. And then we got changed to a different formula and it was literally like a different baby overnight. And it was like, oh, my God, this is, wow. this is, yeah. So it was, yeah, life-changing in terms of changing her onto a hydrolyzed formula, which made such a big difference. But to be honest with you, I just kind of, we didn't have food allergies. I just, it didn't really cross my mind. Even as a dietitian, I didn't think, oh, this could potentially be a food food allergy. At the time, I was working more in adults than just children. So right. um, and I just don't think you think about things like that when you're in you're in the kind of midst of sleep deprivation and everything else that's going on. And then weaning, I'll be honest again, I absolutely hated. I had this vision of it being amazing and cooking all these different foods. And she basically had absolutely no interest in eating. She didn't put anything really in her mouth for the first 12 months of her life. Like you could spoon feed her, but you gave her finger food. Nothing was going near her mouth. And when I mean nothing, I mean, like, you know how babies normally put things in their mouths to chew, like things that they pick on the floor? No, nothing Nothing. went in her mouth. You could leave anything on the floor and she wouldn't put it in her mouth because she basically, I think, was so traumatized by everything that happened that she just had no interest in eating. So, yeah, then I think that's why she became such a fussy eater was also because, and what Mm. I find a lot in my clinics is normally – there's something that's happened, like an allergy or some some experience that often then kind of created some of the issues around eating as well. So, yeah, that's that kind is, of... That's so interesting, Emma, because, you know, I was saying that, that my son Jonah, I would probably say that he's a problem eater, um, which I guess will come on at some point. But, you know, that makes sense that there's potentially, you know, like this almost like triggering traumatic event type scenario that happens and then that totally then affects how they then deal with food moving forward because we had not the same issue with Jonah but uh, he actually had a like a feeding aversion which I had absolutely no idea that that was even a thing but we had a lot of issues in which I mean I think I just make small babies to be honest right because I'm a small person but we had a lot of pressure from like the doctors the health visitors you know like he should be in he should be drinking this amount of milk by this age and even though he was like gaining weight and I mean it it wasn't gaining massive amounts of weight and I think he was on 
I mean, you'll need to remind me because I totally can't remember, but he was on like the smallest centile. Um, not but it was four. In, oh, in fact, no, is there one with a nine? Yeah, there's a nine, there's a second, and then there's a nine. So my little girl's on the second, for example, even now. So yeah, you've I got the like 0.4 second and the ninth. I feel like he was a nine. So, I mean, he was gaining weight, but they were just kind of putting that in my head or he's not drinking enough, he's not drinking enough. And, you know, so we then got into the mindset of, right, we need to keep trying to give him more, give him more, give him more. And what then actually happened, which, I mean, is just, it makes me so sad still to think about it, is that he just completely went off his bottles completely. Mm. And I had no idea that that could even happen. But it got to the point where he literally wouldn't even take his bottles if he was awake. I was having to try and like sneakily feed him like every time that he fell asleep so that he would take it or, you know, I was having to put telly on and distract him. And I mean, that just makes me feel so guilty now. But I had no idea what was happening. I had absolutely no idea that a feeding version was even a thing. I had, I just had in my head that the health visitors, the doctors, they know better. And then what happened is he started to get really, really upset every time he saw the bottle come in, which makes so much sense because he was just like, don't stop stuffing me with food. I don't want it, you know? And he he was getting so upset. And then they were saying to me, oh, well, he's obviously got reflux then if he's getting so upset on the bottles. So then it was then down the route of, right, come on, we'll treat him for for reflux. So, I mean, he tried just about every single reflux product on the market. And it ended up that I actually had to step away and just be like, none of this feels right. Like, this mm. does not feel like I'm getting the right advice whatsoever here. Um, and there was one day that we went, we ended up taking him up to the hospital to get seen because he had not, I think he had drank five mil of milk yeah. in a day. And it was just not enough, not enough. Yeah. And I was absolutely so worried. So we took him up to the hospital and they said that he had a, a feeding aversion and that we just needed to start um, on solid food. So by this point, thankfully, he was like five and a half months. And to be honest, I think he was ready for weaning anyway. But, you know, that really did, that would make sense that that full experience has totally put him off food. Because as much as we then started weaning him from that point, he's always been really fussy about what he would have. And he was really, really fussy from the outset as well, kind of the opposite from your child, though, that he wanted to feed himself. We had to do baby led weaning from the outset. But even now, he's very much probably a problem eater where he is very specific on the foods that Mm -hmm. he'll eat and will not even entertain so many things. So he still doesn't eat any fruit. He doesn't eat like any potatoes at all. He's been really funny with sauces. He's only just started to eat sauces. So, yeah, I think that he is potentially a problem eater. And it makes so much sense to me now that you've said that, that there can be this kind of traumatic event that sets them down that path. Yeah, definitely. You see it a lot. And like whenever I see patients in, you know, clinic and stuff, and it's the same thing. And it's like you ask them what's happened. And and that's why I always ask people, like, tell me right from the beginning, when were they born, you know, all this stuff. And I think they think of me like, I've got a three-year-old. Why do you need to know this? And then it's kind of like exploring, like, what the backstory is and what's happened. And then you can kind of unpick it and be like, okay, right, well, this is where we are. So, you know, this is what's going to help you to sort of move move forward as well. But, yeah, it makes complete sense that he has these aversions and he has these kind of control issues as well around around food as well. And remember as well, around the age of sort of like 18 months, two years, and sort of 
they go through what we call the neophobic stage as well. So if a child again has had, you know, maybe like you said, like that traumatic experience as well, and then you you combine that with the neophobic stage, which is basically like a fear of new foods, which goes back to our ancestors, basically, when obviously not relevant for today, but it's still in our genes. Obviously, at that sort of age, around 18 months, two years, children were more mobile. So then they could pick up potentially poisonous foods. So they had to have that kind of thing inbuilt in them, not to just eat anything that was around them anymore. So this is where you get this stage as well, which is kind of what we call the typical toddler stage with kind of fussy eating. And a lot of children will grow out of it, but some children don't grow out of it that well. Because again, if you've had something like your child has, combined together it can that you know it can be quite a combination that can cause a lot of issues as well and then you get a lot of that fear around food and stuff so what you want to do is try and what I always say to people is try and build their confidence up around food so almost like you would with if you were teaching a child we don't and eating is a really hard skill and we assume that children can just eat like that but actually it's a skill you've actually got to learn it's not something that's just Like when a baby's first born, they automatically know how to suck so that they can get milk, but they don't know how to eat. And that's why it's something really important that we have to teach them. And again, when a child's had something traumatic, we kind of need to build up their confidence again in the same way. We don't expect a child to just be able to write. We don't expect a child to just be able to read, but we expect a child to just be able to eat. And sometimes we need to go back and go through all those stages and make it fun again and do that kind of interacting with food and having fun around food again like we would with learning to read or learning to write, all of those skills that they need to learn and build up their confidence bit by bit, step by step. And I think sometimes as parents, we kind of expect them to go from, well, we've just put the food in them. You know, you eat pasta, so eat those vegetables. And then we do things like apply pressure. So we say, you know, eat those food. If you don't eat that food, you're not getting pudding or you're not getting down to the table until you've eaten that food. And that's so the wrong approach to have with a child because all that does is create more fear they're less likely to feel and like for eating you need to be relaxed like your digestive system has to be relaxed to eat so if you're not relaxed you're not going to eat either so the more anxious the more stressed your child is the less likely they're going to eat it's like for you if I was to say to you right in the next half an hour I want you to sit an exam but first of all I want you to eat a three-course meal you're probably not going to feel like eating a three-course meal just before you're about to sit some kind of exam or some test And for your child, again, the more relaxed they can be, the more chance you've got of them ever interacting and wanting to explore that food. Wow. Do you know, I've never thought of it that way either, Emma. And and the way that, you know, to make him more confident around food, you need to make it fun. You need to actually make it like that learning experience that's actually engaging. I have never thought of it that way. That is really interesting. But I don't think that's natural. You don't think of it like that with food. You don't think like like your natural response with food is just to get them down, sit down and just eat it. You don't think about. And I think also like, again, it's a lot of things that are built into us in society, isn't it? About like, you know, our grandparents and stuff like during the war and stuff like that. Food was scarce. Food was, you know, you must eat everything on the plate because there's not more food. Whereas now we don't have that so much anymore. So it's a completely different way of thinking so parents should never blame themselves there's nothing you've done wrong like it's just a different way of thinking about it yeah and that's quite interesting as well because I feel like you know when you grow up you're always told like you know don't play with your food you know you're just there to sit at the table not mess about and just eat and actually probably that's the wrong kind of approach in a way you know so would you say that it's okay for your children to want to 
play with their food, I guess. Yeah, 100%. And they completely think they benefit from playing with their food. Because there's also another thing with them where basically there's 32 steps to eating and the first few steps are literally just tolerating the food. And it's not until the later steps of like 27, 28, something you actually put the food in the mouth. There's all these different steps that you have to go through with food, which is why play around food is so important and why things like with younger children, things like messy play. And I know a lot of parents hate messy play because it's like you've got to clear it all up. But if you can contain it to just something really small, and even if it's just getting them to cut up that bit of vegetables or stir something, or interact with that food or pick a fun recipe, anything that's kind of fun around food. And sometimes I say to people, you know, don't necessarily always try new food at meal times because I think sometimes that's the worst time. And I think a lot of parents try it when a child's come home from school, they're tired. You know, all they want to eat is something beige that they're familiar with, you know, they feel happy with. They don't want to eat, you know, broccoli or something else at that time of day. So with my little girl, for me, I found the best way to ever get her to try new food has been in a much more relaxed environment outside mealtimes and doing like fun food challenges. We did a whole thing around Strictly and like each week we pick a different food and she tried so many different new foods that she never would have tried otherwise. So yeah, the more fun, the more games you can have around food, the better, I think. Wow, that is honestly such a fascinating and valuable approach. Like that's kind of blown my mind a little bit. I'm like, oh my God, this opens like a whole new world of opportunity thinking of things that I can potentially do to get them to even just at first interact with the food. Because he's that way where, you know, I have, so for instance, let's take the example of fruit. He just he eats bananas and that's it. Literally no other fruit. So I would always put fruit on his plate at dinner time and I've always offered it. But that makes sense that, you know, potentially dinner time's not the best time to do that. And he will often just be so kind of like exhausted, tired, mm-hmm. done with the day that even the sight of that on his plate, he's like, I don't want that. I don't like that. Why have you put that on my plate? So that makes sense that maybe we need to change that approach a little bit, make it a more fun environment. Yeah. And also try that in a more kind of relaxed setting where it doesn't feel like he absolutely has to eat that. That's totally, totally blown my mind. Like a Saturday morning or something, or when you're quieter, or when maybe you know, like is around and it's in the morning. Sometimes children are better in the morning and eat better in the morning, and you know, just doing some fun games with fruit, or even things like hiding. You know, like you can get, I saw an amazing thing online actually where someone had got like trays and they'd put, you know, they're kind of like baking trays that you make muffins in, and then they'd covered it with those magnetic like colored things, and then they put like a little bit of something in each one, and then it was just a case of like rolling a dice and getting the colour and then they'd literally pick like red so then they'd lift up red see what was in it and again it wouldn't necessarily be he'd eat it it would just be like can you tell me the colour of it or like what does it smell like and then covering up and then mummy has a go you know like doing it you know that way is like a really fun game rather than and I love that and I saw it online I thought god yeah that's a really clever way but any games around food can work really well that makes so much sense oh I'm really excited now to actually give that a go because I feel like that could really be a good starting point you know interacting in a more fun way about food so Emma can you just explain us and always spoke a lot about you know kind of my situation and we've touched on kind of problem eating fussy eating but can you just actually explain what is the difference between a fussy eater and a problem eater what is the difference between the two and how do you know that you actually need 
help and support to get through that. So a fussy eater would normally explore sort of multiple number of foods, sort of around like you're sort of looking about 30 or so foods that they will, you know, happily explore. Tends to be with problem eaters that they tend to eat less and they tend to cut what we call food jag, which is where they cut more and more foods out as well. So it tends to be that they will eat less and less foods. And often what I find in clinic is, and again, I'll share you a resource, which gives you a really good breakdown of the difference between a problem and fussy eater. When I see children that are eating sort of less than 10 foods or even less, that's when I start to get worried. Like, And also that what I find as well is that they'll tend to food jag. So we'll cut out foods. But normally with a fussy eater, what they'll do is they'll reintroduce those foods. It might be a couple of weeks later, but they'll reintroduce that food. Whereas a problem eater, once they've cut that food out, they tend not to normally ever reintroduce that food not always and again if you have you know feeding therapy and help obviously you can help them but that tends to be what we find with problem eaters they tend to also be very fearful of food as well like a real fear and a kind of real aversion to food as well they don't want to touch it they don't want to try it whereas a fussy eater is normally much more open they will actually try the food they might not like it but they will they're willing to try it as well so those are some of the main differences. But like I said, I'll share with you a link which gives you a really good breakdown because there's lots of lots of different factors as well. And again, it's good to seek help from a dietitian as well if you can. And if you can speak to your GP and ask for referrals as well. And again, some with a problem eater, often you need like what we call a multidisciplinary team. So you might want a dietitian. If they've got sensory issues, you want to speak to an occupational therapist as well. If there's checking as well that there's no swallowing issues, there's no other issues, again, you might want to speak to speech and language as well. And again, if they're under a paediatrician as well, if there's any like growth concerns or anything else, you know, going on as well, developmentally and all of those sort of things. So that's kind of with a problem eater. But again, ask, speak to your GP if you're really worried and ask for a referral to a dietitian. So again, sometimes with problem eaters as well, often they're not growing that well either. You know, they're not tracking their growth centiles. Whereas a fussy eater will normally be tracking their growth centers okay. as well. So they'll normally be growing, growing along. But that doesn't take away because I don't want to say because I see a lot of parents with, you know, really fussy eaters whose children are growing really, really well because they eat lots of beige carbohydrates. But it doesn't take away from the fact that they're actually still deficient in, you know, anemic or they, they're not mm-hmm. eating a wide variety of foods or they're only eating, you know, like a problem eater will often always eat like, won't eat all the food groups as well. So they won't have like a carbohydrate, a protein, fruit and vegetables. They won't have all of those different food groups. So again, if you're worried, what I always recommend parents to do is write down a list of everything your child eats and then try and put it into the different food groups so you can identify where your gaps are as well. And if they've got, if they're missing whole food groups, you tend to see that more in the problem eaters than a fussy eater. You normally get, even if it's limited, you normally get one or two foods in each of those different groups as well. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of if you do have a problem eater, a fussy eater, obviously I know that the approach would then be to get that external support from a dietitian. Mm-hmm. Should they be taking, making sure that their children take vitamins in the meantime to kind of boost that? Is vitamins something that you would recommend? Yeah, definitely. So all children up to the six months to the age of five should take vitamin A and vitamin D, regardless of whether they're a fussy eater or not, especially vitamin D at this time of year, because obviously we don't get any sunlight. So it's really, really important. Everyone in the country should be taking vitamin D as well at this time of year. 
But yes, for a child that's very restrictive, and yes, we definitely recommend vitamins and minerals as well. But again, it depends. And that's why it's quite useful because I do something like a dietary assessment. It's quite useful to understand like what they're eating over like three to five days so I can see where the gaps are. So then I can recommend which multivitamin or mineral they're low in. So I can say, okay, right, well, this would be the best one because they're low in iron and they're low in zinc. So again, it depends, you know, what your child's eating and what nutrients they are particularly low in. And again, you can buy them from a supermarket, you know, a pharmacy. It doesn't need to be anything mega expensive either. They're, you know, the best vitamins aren't necessarily the best ones. I mean, a good one's the Tesco's children's multivitamin. That's a good one. It's got some zinc and iron. Well Kid, do another one. Again, it's a liquid one that's quite a good one as well. So yeah, I, I, I normally recommend vitamins and minerals as well. But don't go really high doses or anything like that as well. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So that's good then, you know, if you have that support from a dietitian, then you can get that really tailored approach to what your child actually needs. That's really good, actually. So Emma, can you just explain as well, I know you touched about it uh, just there when you were talking as well about the centiles. This is something that I think really confuses people. And I have to admit, it's never been something that I've fully understood either. Can you give us a bit of background on understanding that? Yeah, of course. I'll, I'll try my best here because it's not not that easy to say. But basically, the way I like to think of it and the way someone explained it to me once was basically, so the centile charts, you've basically got, your, you normally track your child's weight and obviously their height. And below two, it's obviously their length because you're meant to use a length board to measure them. After 12, after two, sorry, it's their height. And basically, you'll see on the centiles, you've got like the 0.4 centile, the second centile, the ninth centile. I know it sounds like a really random combination, 25th, 50th, 75th, 91st, and 98th. And basically, all you're thinking of is basically, if you had 100 children lined up, someone's nice. got to be on the first and someone's going to be on the 100. So it's yeah. not necessarily... Like, for example, my child's on the second centile. She is tiny, but her height is also on the second centile and her weight is on the second centile. So she is perfectly proportional. And she has always been tracking along those particular centers. We've sometimes had dips, which is where I try and get her weight back up. But basically, she tracks along that centile. And she would basically be in her class, the smallest child, which she is the smallest child. But again, that's fine. And then you'll have other children who are on like the 50th centile. So they are like, you know, right in the middle. But if your child's tracking the 50th centile, that's absolutely fine. And again, what we normally look for is one centile either side. So if their weight was on, say, the 50th centile, but their height was on like the 75th centile, that's fine. Obviously, if their height was then on the 91st centile and they were only tracking the 50th centile, then we classify them as being underweight and we want to increase their weight to match their height but it's also not just done on one weight and one height so as a dietitian I would look back and I'd want to know basically what was their birth rate what have they been tracking since have they always been on the second you know the second centile like my little girl or were they on the 50th and then have they dropped right down you know it's it's looking at those kind of patterns so you can never just take one weight you need to look at multiple weights over time and see where your child was or did they drop weight because they were really unwell and they were in hospital something happened and that's why they dipped at that time but then they've they've come back up to where they should be which is along the 50th centile so yeah that's and also you can look as well at like average heights as well so you can look at parental on the sides of the little in the red books as well there's a little like parental height and you can work out where your height is and your partner's height and roughly where you think your child 
might be height wise as well so yeah oh, hopefully that helps no that definitely does help and I actually wish that I'd known that because I feel like I would have stressed a lot less about Jonah and his feeding situation had I known that because yeah. that is not the understanding that I had of centiles at all I thought that it was really normal for them to you know like really go between and you were kind of aiming to push them up the centile if that makes sense but that's totally not what you're trying to do that's all you're trying to do is track so wherever they are you know wherever your child is then that's absolutely fine obviously if they're dropping and like if my child drops to the 0.4 that's concerning because she's already smallish you know whereas so you know it's all about where your child is and measuring but yes I think for a lot of people they get really stressed and like they come to me and then they'll be like but oh, my child's really tiny they're only on the ninth centile and they need to get up to the 50th and I'm like no no they don't have they always yeah. been on the ninth centile and they're like yeah yeah and I'm like well that's where they are and then it's like then you ask parents you're like oh how big are you and like you know what's your genetics and then they'll say something like oh my partner's really tall and slim and he's always been like this and you're like well again chances are that again the genetics and everything else that's going on so yeah, I think loads of parents come to me really, really worried about that. And they're like, oh, my child's so small. And I'm like, no, they're not. They're fine. They're absolutely yeah. fine. So it's confusing. Oh. As Emma, where were you when I needed you back in 2020? <laughs> Sorry. Honestly, like, <laughs> if I had just known that, I would have stressed a lot less. Yeah, for sure. And That's... you shouldn't have been stressing. If your child, if you've been referred to a dietitian and you'd been and you'd been tracking the ninth centre and I'd have seen you, I'd have been like, your child's absolutely fine. You don't need oh, to worry. So frustrating, isn't it? Sometimes when yeah. you just get that either lack of information or the wrong information, because, you know, that's something that I carry a lot of guilt for still. You know, I still feel a little bit like that was kind of my fault. Do you know what I mean? Like I kind of pushed them into that corner. So, oh, I really wish that I'd, I had known that back then. Well, you shouldn't so, feel guilt, though, because I really, it's it's not your fault and you're just in the situation you are in. I mean, I feel the same about, like, breastfeeding. I would love to have breastfed and it all to have worked out and it didn't. And again, I think as mums, we carry a lot of guilt, don't we? And we feel mm-hmm. like it's our fault and we're responsible for our child's feeding. But, you know, it's about taking away that guilt as well and trying to be like, well, no, actually, it's not my fault. And that was the situation I was in at the time. And this is where we are now. And it's about, you know, working on the strategies I've talked about to help your little one now rather than you can't change what's happened. You can only move forward. So, yeah, no, you're so right. And I do actually feel like a little bit comforted after speaking to you because I'm like, do you know, I actually feel like there's a way forward as well. You know, I can actually help support them become more comfortable around food as well and don't get me wrong because he does eat loads of different things so he maybe isn't actually a problem you know he maybe just is a fussy eater um and he he just has these things that he really likes and he has these things that he really doesn't like so it'll be now just trying to move forward with making that more fun and seeing if we can introduce new foods as well so another thing that can potentially cause issues with like you know losing weight and stuff like that with the kids can be the allergies so I know you've got your own personal experience on this I feel like it's something that's not really talked about until you're in the thick of it you know there's not yeah. a lot of information on looking out for the signs and symptoms of that so a lot of the time women feel completely lost when they've got their baby that seems to be having a problem and they just can't figure out what that problem is there's actually not a huge amount of information on that so can you talk to us a little bit about you know, what kind of allergies that you can be looking out for with your children? And what are the kind of signs that your baby maybe is experiencing an allergy? 
Yeah, I think it's a hard one because, again, I think you have to be careful that you don't sort of, you know, like you don't get parents really worried and then they start panicking and they're worried about, you know, allergies. Allergies are still quite rare, although they are increasing. They are still rare. You know, cow's milk allergies only in about, I think it's like 2% of um, children in the UK. It's not big numbers. I think it does get overdiagnosed sometimes as well. So again, in terms of, for me, I mean, again, I didn't think my little girl had um, a milk allergy at all, but obviously she did. And I think for us, mainly for the, what we call the non-IG allergies, which is the delayed allergy, especially to like cow's milk protein, which is probably the most common allergy that you see. And especially obviously when you're breastfeeding and, you know, feeding formula, you are feeding them, you know, milk. So again, it's more likely that that's one's going to be picked up. So basically for my little girl, it was like lots of gastro symptoms. So she had things like reflux. She was arching her back. We got to the point where obviously she was screaming all day, was really uncomfortable. She didn't lose weight at all, which again is one that a lot of parents worry about. And they get told by, you know, medical professionals, oh, well, they're not losing weight, so they're fine. So again, they cannot lose weight. especially. So that's not necessarily one. Eventually, my little girl did start to lose a bit of weight because she started to refuse the bottle completely. I think by that point, she was in so much pain and so much discomfort. And this was sort of like three months, you know, into potentially the milk allergy as well. Sometimes rashes as well. Not always eczema, but eczema is very common in children as well. So eczema isn't always related to a food allergy. And I know I see a lot of parents who cut out so many different foods. They're breastfeeding and they cut out all these foods because they think that that's what's causing the eczema. And often eczema is environmental or, or lots of other issues going on as well with eczema. So don't always necessarily assume just because they've got eczema that it's definitely an allergy. I'm not saying it isn't always, but it's not always the cause as well. So yeah, for us, it was lots of those kind of gastro-y type symptoms, generally really uncomfortable and that sort of thing as well. With a non-IG allergy, so delayed allergy, everything's within like two to 72 hours. Whereas with an IG allergy, which is what we call an immediate allergy, that's when you tend to get more the immediate, you know, response. So within two hours where you might get like the hives and, you know, an instant kind of reaction as well. So that's kind of what you're looking for. And again, I'll send you a really good um, link as well from um, Allergy UK, which breaks down all the different symptoms as well and the difference between an IG and a non-IG allergy so that parents can read that as well. And it can give them a really good understanding of it as well, because it's quite hard to sort of without seeing a child as well and often if your child is referred for an allergy or they are diagnosed potentially with a cow's milk allergy again you should be referred to someone like a dietitian to be seen so that they can help support you with weaning making sure they're getting all the vitamins that they need all the iodine the calcium everything like that and then also support you with reintroduction as well so there's something called the milk ladder that again we, we, we can help and support you with so you shouldn't be on your own if your child is diagnosed with an allergy as well you should be able to get some support I know the waiting times are long at the moment but you should be pushing to try and get some kind of help and support as well and also as a dietitian we can help diagnose and I can sort of see if I think you know it is a milk allergy or not and again we do something called the milk challenge as well which I was speaking to a lovely lady yesterday about so we try reintroducing that milk to see if it definitely is and confirm whether it is actually a milk allergy or not because again some of the symptoms with a milk allergy, like things like the colic, the reflux and stuff, cannot be linked to an allergy. So it's not always an easy one to necessarily be like, yes, it's, you know, sometimes it's definitely, yep, it's an allergy. Like my child, they go on to like a neutramogen formula, hydrolyzed formula, and like literally she seems, 
she was completely back. You know, like she seemed so much better. All the crying, all the pain and everything else stopped. And also we did the milk ladder and it took us three and a half years for her to get to that top of the ladder. We couldn't get past like the white sauces. So I think she definitely had a milk allergy. Like I can kind of confirm that that's definitely what it was. But again, it's it's and the problem with a delayed allergy as well is you can't do like things like the skin prick tests and all of those tests. They don't they won't give you any results. So what you need to do with a delayed allergy is is basically you are trying and having to do the reintroduction, which I know for a lot of parents and for me as well, is really, really stressful as well, which is why having someone to help you and support you through the process is really important as well. Yeah, definitely, because I can imagine, I mean, I've neither of my children have had allergies, thankfully, but I can imagine how stressful that scenario must be and, you know, all of the kind of negative feelings that would come around that. So I'm really glad that there is that support there because I feel like otherwise you wouldn't even know where to begin with that one. So I'm really glad that there is that support out there. The first thing to do is to speak to your health visitor or your your GP to start with as well. If you're experiencing symptoms and you feel like there's something else, you know, trust your gut, I think, as well. Like if you feel like something's not not working. And I, I know from a lot of people, I had a really positive experience with our GP and the milk. We did get just referred straight to hospital and, you know, we were supported. But I know for a lot of parents and a lot of the studies have shown that people go back and forth multiple times. And especially if you're a first time mum, you get a lot of the well, it's just colic, or they're just this. But I think if things don't start to improve, you know, keep going back and sort of pushing for more help and support as well. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that. So what do you think would be for a first-time mum or even perhaps a subsequent mum, what would be your tips to encourage a healthy relationship with food from the outset what do parents need to focus on do you mean from like actually when they're born or do you mean more when they're sort of starting weaning and things like that either it can be from when they're born and when they start that that weaning process what what are your kind of tips to encourage that healthy behavior around food I think, I mean, obviously, when you're first starting, again, it depends how you're going to feed and, you know, getting support. And if you want to breastfeed and, you know, getting some help and support out there to help you on that journey as well. And again, with, you know, with bottle feeding, again, depending on which, you know, all the formulas are quite similar. So again, you know, don't feel that you have to buy the most expensive formula or anything like that either. So yeah, just picking one that works for you, trying to feed your child on demand as much as you can. But again, each child's different and again like you said you know like with my little girl we couldn't we couldn't do any of that stuff and you were you know again they had concern you were they were concerned about the weight of your child obviously looking back now potentially you didn't need to but you know it all depends on the journey and then I think with weaning it's about trying to enjoy it with your child you know trying to have fun trying you know lots of different food letting them play with food as much as you can and accept that the first stage of weaning they're probably not going to eat that much either it is going to be mainly thrown and and that's part of the learning to eat process so just kind of embracing it buying some really good you know like shower mat things or things on the floor that you can at least try and you know clear up a little bit easier but you are going to get a lot of mess and accept that and enjoy that process of getting messy and I would even say as toddlers as well when because often what I find is that children will wean really nicely and parents are like, I don't understand. They get everything when they weaned and then they hit what I said with that neophobic stage and then they stop eating a lot of food. 
So again, go back to having fun with food, getting messy with them, you know, doing all of those things. And again, I share a lot of my account, a lot of things on food chaining as well, you know, and doing food challenges and things like that. Just go back and enjoy food with them and take any pressure away at meal times that you can, because the more pressure you apply, the worse things will get as well. Yeah. Is it true? Because I feel like I've seen this. I can't remember if it's been on social media, but is it true that you don't need to stress about the, the amount of physical food that your child is eating up until they're like in their first year of life? Is that true that they only need that milk for that first year of life and you don't actually need to worry about them having the intake of physical food, if that makes sense? No, that's not actually true. So that's that whole kind of thing. Food is fun. Yeah, fun until one. So they do need key nutrients in that first year, especially things like iron, for example. So like children up till six months have um, a natural iron store from the mother. After six months, that starts to deplete. So it is important that they are getting like iron rich foods. And we're sort of aiming for like twice a day, you know, as well. So it is Food is still really important. And again, the other thing with food as well is the texture. So it's not sticking to just those puree type foods, because again, they need to learn how to eat those lumps and they need mashed food. And then you need to work, you know, way towards, you know, and that's why I'm quite pro the sort of finger and, you know, finger foods, you know, baby led weaning with a bit of puree and a bit of mixed in. So again, you're getting the nutrients from potentially the spoon feeding, but they're also learning to eat as well. So again, yeah, no, there are they're really important skills and really important nutrients they do need in that first year. It's not just it's not just about having fun in that very first year. But again, don't put too much pressure on yourself either, because, again, you know, every child's different. You know, as long as they're growing well, they're tracking their centiles as well. Just explore food and have fun. I know, like, we didn't do this, and I don't think it really would work, my child. But I know there's, like, this 100 food challenge things, you know, just to try loads of different tastes and different flavours with your child. And having all of those kind of fun things to do as well can sometimes help as well. Yeah, no, that's really good to know. And the other thing I was wondering as well is, do you think that it's good to kind of have every food group on an even keel? So what I mean is, like, would you recommend to parents avoiding the language around food being good and food being bad? You know, like, I personally, and I don't know if this is the right thing, but I have always encouraged, like, it's perfectly fine to have a wee bit of cake with your dinner, if you know what I mean, and just serve everything all at the one time rather than being like, you need to eat all of this good food before you get to this bad thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, we're doing exactly the right approach. Yeah, there's no such thing as good or bad food. That's just something we've yeah. kind of labelled food as. All food has some nutrients in it. And like you said, what you're doing there by not, you know, having a cake with the meal is you're not putting what we call a pudding on a pedestal, which is basically mm-hmm. by saying, oh, the pudding's good and you really want to eat this. But the rest of the food that you're having for meal, that's that's, you know, you don't really want to eat that because that's not as fun as that that nice cake and that chocolate that you only get because you've been really good and therefore it's you know it's a really good thing to have so again we're just making it sound like it's a really you know something they really want more than having yeah so again totally the right approach I yeah never call food good or bad that's good to know so don't label food as treats and stuff like that as well and do you think avoid using food as a reward would you agree with that definitely 
Never I mean, use food as a reward. It will backfire. It will work maybe once, twice. You know, you'll get them to eat that thing, but you haven't got them to eat it. You've just bribed them to eat it. And in yeah. the long term, they're not really necessarily going to start consistently eating that food either. It will work very short term, but it won't work longer term. Yeah. Oh, Emma, I feel like I have learned so much from you. Thank you so much for sharing everything with us today because, honestly, I feel like, like I said, my mind has been completely blown. I'm really excited to take some of what you've said today and actually implement that myself within my family. So I'm really excited to do that. So those resources that you send me, if I pop them in the show notes for the episode. Yeah, definitely. Perfect. And would you mind just giving me a little rundown of how people could work with you if they would like to do that? Yeah, so I'm currently, if you're on Instagram, I'm at dietitian.withadifference. I share loads of weekly tips and I've got loads of free guides as well on fussy eating and some cow's mycology guides as well. So if you ever need anything, just come and visit me, message me on Instagram as well. I'm always happy to answer any questions as well. And um, I offer one-to-one consultations and I also have a Create Confident Eaters program as well if you want more support. Amazing. Thank you so much. I will pop all of your details in the show notes as well. So that's nice and easy for people to find you. But thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom today. I knew this was going to be a good one. So I really appreciate your time and all the information that you provided as well. I know that for certain that's going to help lots and lots of listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me as well. It's been lovely. No problem at all. So I will speak to you soon. So I really hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and that you've been able to take something away from it, whether that's feeling less alone or more in the know. If you have enjoyed today's episode, the usual stuff applies. A review or a share with a friend is a really great way for me to build my community so that I can help more women. All the good stuff is in the show notes, guys, including details on how to work with me, or you can check out my website at www.breathingtobirth.com. I'll see you next week.